0: This episode is brought to you by Gin & Co, author website design specialists. If you want a beautiful and functional website to promote your books and brand, reach out to Gin today. His work includes tailored, expertly designed professional author websites, I finally have a website I'm proud to share. And we've got a special offer for Words and Nerds listeners. Reach out today and get a free domain name and website hosting for the first year. You can get their website essentials package includes domain name, website hosting, backup and security free for the first year with any website purchase. This is valued at $330 a year. Choose a website designed to bring your author brand to life. You can find more details about this special offer at ginand.co forward slash words and nerds. Welcome to the Words and Nerds Podcast. I'm Danny V, podcast host and children's author. I also do some work in publishing in acquisitions and publicity. As we hurdle towards one million plays, we'll continue to provide you with conversational, vulnerable, honest and fun chats with your favourite authors across all genres. Check out our Takeover episodes, usually released on a Friday, and our spin-offs released during the month. Thank you for being here, being part of the journey, and supporting Aussie Creatives. Welcome to the Words and Nerds podcast, where we bring literary goodness straight to your ears. Today, I welcome Clementine Ford, writer, broadcaster, and feminist community builder. Clementine is the best selling author of the feminist manifestos Fight Like a Girl and Boys Will Be Boys, and her memoir How We Love. Today, we're going to talk about I Don't. Today, we're going to talk about I Don't, The Case Against Marriage, a fascinating read for everyone. This book gives you incredible insights into how women have been treated throughout history, how marriage has been used to control women and what it means for marriage today. Today, we're going to talk about I Don't, The Case Against Marriage, and I just think it was a fascinating read. And I just think it gives you a really incredible insight into how women have been treated throughout history. I mean, we all know it, but I don't think we all know the details and I know you did a lot of research, but how marriage has been used to control us and what it means for marriage today. So I'm so interested in all of this stuff. So I guess that was a little bit of an elevator pitch, but, you know, how would you describe the book if you had to go right? this is what this book is about?
1: Well, I think that the tagline on the front of the cover says it all. It's Mm. a new story. It's a new story about an old lie.
0: Mm.
1: And, you know, to sort of like, go a little bit deeper into that it's looking at the history of marriage and telling women in particular although of course the book is accessible to everyone and I want everyone to read it but telling women in particular a lot of things they don't know about a topic they thought they did and whether or not you're pro or anti-marriage from the get-go and even if at the end of reading this book you still feel like, well, I my marriage is good or I still hold out hope for marriage or I still think marriage can be what we make it and I still want to do it, whatever. Like I, for If you read the book, you'll see that I have uh, what I think is a very rigorously argued position that marriage is unsalvageable. Now, whether or not people ultimately agree with that or not, I don't think that you can disagree with the arguments that I make statistics. about, the, about the, the statistics about <laughs> the history of it. But that essentially like I'm trying to I'm trying to ask people to think more critically yeah. about why they want to do this thing. Do they is it an is it a human impulse or is it the culmination of an extremely effective, extremely well funded, and extremely well adaptable millennia long PR campaign? And I would I would argue that it's that because, I mean, for a start, even the fact of the idea that like we marry for love, you know, well, humans, they want to love each other. They get married, we fall in love, we're going to marry my best friend and be with him for the rest of my life or her or them. That's a very new concept. Historically, the idea Mm. that you would marry someone for love is pretty recent. It's about 200 years old. It's called companionate marriage. And prior to that, marriage was about empire building. It was about economics, which is, Partly why women had absolutely no legal rights in it, because they were just traded as property um, between men to empire build and to kinship build. Because it was recognized that large and stable families, like people married for the in-laws, large and stable families were a way to achieve economic security in the world. And they were especially a way for the incredibly wealthy to um secure intergenerational wealth and to hoard intergenerational wealth and for the less wealthy to improve their circumstances. Marriage for love was a radical new concept amongst mostly young people in around the 19th, 18th, 19th, 18th and 19th century where people, as Stephanie Koontz puts out in her incredible book, Marriage of History, the people who would have, the older people in the older generations who would have been watching these young people say, well, I want to marry for love daddy would have been like, you're insane. Marriage for love is flimsy and unreliable because the idea that you would base something so important economically on something so transient as love was obvious to people that they were like, love comes and goes, but economic security, that's what we're building here. And so now we've come to a position where we think in society that because love has always been a part of human society. Of course it has, but it's been separate to marriage and empire building. But we think that somehow those two things have always been inextricably linked that. So when someone like me comes along and says, well, we need to dismantle marriage. They're like, well, why do you hate men? And why do you hate love? And why do you, is it okay for people to be together? Like, what if you, what if you really like your partner? It's like, it's not about that. It's about the institution. What is the institution gaining from us continuing to sign up to it? What are we condoning when we, in a modern era, overlook the incredible harms that have been done to women throughout history the lack of choice, the lack of freedom, the the very fact that women had no control over their body or reproductive capacity and that marriage gave all of those rights to their husbands. If you stand there today from a political pos- position, and I'm I'm about liberation politics, right, if you stand there today from a political position and you say, well, but I really love him and marriage gives me status in the world both economically and socially and so I'm just going to kind of overlook the fact that most women throughout history were abused in marriage because I want it. It sort of doesn't like stand up to scrutiny. Mm. It doesn't mean, of course, that you can't form a de facto partnership with someone and still have that, that building of a world together. But something about the marriage still gives people a sense of like, you know, smug, puffed out chest, ruffled feathers, pride about it. And that's going to sound challenging to some of your listeners to hear it. It's going to sound like I'm being aggressive, you know, like, well, don't call me smug. I'm not calling you smug. I'm saying that the system is designed to make us feel a little bit smug about our choices and a little bit better than other people. And, and what's the, that about?
0: Yeah. And the question, just what you said there is like, why do we want it? And I think that it was what I was reading throughout, you know, I was brought up in the 80s 90s where it's expectation that oh you'll get married and back then you'll get married to a man you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) which i try and have a very different conversation with my kids now but i think you've nailed it like why why do we want it how does it benefit people um look at its history and i think you're right like the wedding industry like we just buy into that and Mm -hmm. you yourself describe yourself as a hopeless romantic and i love that because i I think of myself as that way too but the marriage propaganda and wedding industry, they buy into that so much. Mm-hmm. It's almost like, well, you can't love each other unless you get married or this is just what you do. So why do we still subscribe to it when it has such a chaotic history attached to it?
1: Well, I think, it, again, it comes back to that idea of status. Um, and for women in particular, there are very few things in the world that we are allowed to be proud of and there are very few things that we're allowed to showboat about, to to boast about and to, and to ask for celebration of, you know, we're taught from a very young age as girls to know our place and to keep ourselves small and to keep ourselves humble because anything more than that, anything more than like the, the most sacrificial of loves, the most martyrdom of motherhoods, the most, humble of existences is, is us being attention seekers now how many of your listeners who are women or or were socialized as girls are familiar with the accusation of being an attention seeker yeah. um particularly if you're if you're opinionated Opinionated again is another word that's usually only ascribed to women. Like men don't get described as opinionated. They get described as knowledgeable, mm, or assertive. Um, assertive, um, intellectual. Whereas women are opinionated. We're we're brash, we're we're bossy, we're shrill, we shriek. Intimidating. We're intimidating, and we're attention seekers. Mm. Now I consider myself to be a, a political, a politically minded person who is not afraid to speak what she thinks. Um, and the number of times that I have come to a position from you know, a researched position, with intelligence with, uh you know, a rigor that I think that I've developed over the years. Even me speaking about myself like this now, I'm aware that this is not how women are supposed to talk about ourselves. We're not supposed to say we're smart. We're not supposed to say that we're brilliant. We're not supposed to say that we are rigorous. On this podcast, you are supposed to
0: say <laughs> those things. <laughs> well, I mean, but in the world, yeah. <laughs> and no, so, I know what you're and saying.
1: so, of course, whenever I'm like talking about issues that I feel passionately about, you know, rape culture, for example, ending domestic abuse, even just unpacking toxic masculinity, even just sharing my own experiences of things that have happened to me in terms of like the online world and, and the abuse that I received, uh, that I receive. Oh, you're an attention seeker. Mm. And it's like, I know you're saying that to try and make me feel ashamed because shame is the best way that we get women to be silent, but I'm just going to agree with you. Yes. I am seeking attention for the things that I care about and the things that I think are important. And I'm seeking attention for people to listen to my voice because I think that my voice is, is important and, and has proven itself to be valuable. So, yes, I am an attention seeker, but you're calling me that because I'm a woman who's seeking yeah. attention. And it's all just so to make with,
0: you small and it's built in fear. Exactly. It's built in fear that you will say something that is true that then dismantles marriage, it dismantles patriarchy. So there's a fear in those insults. Exactly. But when we
1: take that idea of, like, the attention seeker and the, the limited ways that women in the world are allowed to be big, allowed to take up space, allowed to be... People in the world, one of the few ways that we are allowed to do that is through a wedding, and okay, yeah. because it's so, because it's acceptable mm. for us to want attention for doing something so conformist to patriarchal values yep. as marriage. It's acceptable for us to want attention for uh, being, you know, sacrificial mothers. It's acceptable for us to to because it's not about seeking attention in those. It's not considered to be seeking attention. It's considered to be um, co-signing. Yeah. See, this woman supports it. And so, as a woman who's getting married, I mean, this is this is just one part of it, ov- obviously. But as a woman who's getting married, to be able to stand there on your big day, it's never called his big day, is it? No, it's her big day. Yeah, is. and isn't that funny that we talk about her big day, one? You get one in your life, your big day, and your big day is the day that you become someone's wife because, ugh, fuck, everyone can stop worrying about you now.
0: You've got a man
1: or a partner, even a wife. Like I, my position in the book thats that same-sex marriage is no more radical. Oh, sorry, my position in the book is that same-sex marriage is equally as unradical mm-hmm. as heterosexual marriage and I know that that again challenges people too because they're like well how dare you say that my queer marriage isn't radical when I wasn't allowed to do it for so long it's like firstly why do you want to do something that for so long they told you you weren't allowed to have why would you want to be a member of a club that tried so hard to, to keep you, you mm. and our kind out of it mm. and secondly what is radical about you about the the, the circle of who can engage in extremely conservative, extremely conformist ways of being. What is radical about that circle just becoming bigger so we can now have more people who are codifying it. Codifying it. One of the reasons why marriage is so important to the government, and that's another thing that I want people to think about is why when we know governments do not care about the happiness of the people, if they cared about the happiness of the people then we would have a universal wage. Mm-hmm. If they cared about the happiness of mothers then single mothers and mothers who live on the margins uh, mothers who live in the margins wouldn't be struggling day to day because they know they would know that the government cares about the happiness of me and my child and cares about the well-being of me and my child so I don't have to worry about living on the breadline. The government all governments give zero fucks about their citizens what they care about is the citizens' conforming and complying. And one of the best ways that you can get people as individuals to conform and comply to government systems is by assigning small groups to them where they feel desperately like it's their responsibility to protect them. So if you have small little enclaves of three or four or five member families and you repeat via government messaging, however insidiously, that you have to protect your family, You have to look after your family. You have to do the best by your family. And that's why you have to vote for this conservative policy that protects your family. It fucks fucks everyone else, but it protects your family. It appeals to people's idea that somehow there's this huge threat to their family, for example, for a start, but also that it keeps them in line. It keeps them in line to the system. And it's a much easier way to control the population than by dealing with large uprisings of people. And if you look at what's happening right now, um, you know, with large uprisings of people who are protesting the genocide in Palestine, that there there are attempts being made everywhere to suppress people's freedom of speech on that and to suppress the idea that a watching world is protesting What we can see in front of our very eyes, which is a military funded imperialist government, which is not a representative of faith, but a representative of a government doing everything they can to flatten a population and commit a genocide against a people. And there are people who are saying we're not going to stand for it because uprisings are and they're being suppressed and people are losing their jobs for speaking out because uprisings are very, uprisings are very threatening mm. to dominant government systems yeah, and to absolutely. political systems. Mm. So then, so that's that's just a very good example of how one of the ways then that you keep people in line is to make them feel like they constantly have to protect their own safety and their own values. We should question when we're thinking about marriage when effectively, particularly in Australia, you can live in a de facto relationship and get effectively all of the same benefits that you might from yeah. marriage. We should question why it is still important to so many of us that we sign that piece of paper. And people say, well, I want to, you know, it's really important to our family. I wanted to have a, a party. Okay. It's not illegal to have a party Yeah, and say we are right. standing here and pledging our lives to each other. That's You can do that. But there's something in the paper. There's something still in the status of the marriage. And the wedding and all that build up. And there again, you can, still, you can still have the wedding without yeah, the paper. That's true. But there's something in amongst all of that pantomime of it, that rigmarole, mm. the ritual, which is not tradition. It's very new. But there's something in the performance of it that makes people feel like they've ascended. into something and then you add add to it like social media now and and i'm like one of the things that i talk about in the book is the way that queen victoria's marriage to prince albert was kind of like the original influencer wedding because it was just it 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 occurred just after the kind of um the invention of the widespread printing press so all of these newspapers could breathlessly report (laughs) the lead up to the wedding and you know um stories traveled from town to town and it was so wild that excuse me it was so wild that Queen Victoria had a stalker who was writing letters to her. And Charles Dickens even wrote to the paper and was like, Everyone's in a tizzy about the royal wedding. I'd marry the Queen Victoria if I could myself. You know, everyone was in love with the young Queen because she was so in love with Prince Albert. And then she chose to demonstrate that love by by really like bucking royal tradition, refusing to wear the purple robes of state, and saying that she wanted to profess her love to Albert as a woman, not as a monarch. And she also wanted to support the, you know, coinciding with this, the Industrial Revolution had been decimating the artisanal textile industries of the UK at the time. And so she wanted to support the textile makers and in doing so, influence people in that direction. So she wore a dress that was made of satin in the Spitalfields. It was made in the Spitalfields of, you know, beautiful cream satin. And she had Honiton lace made in Devon. And the best color to showcase the intricacy of lace is white. And she had it kind of like adorned with flowers to show off her virgin her virginity, um, which, again, is like a very archaic concept that it's historically we, we don't, I mean, women still wear white dresses for why. Like, yeah. so it's indicating that they're a maiden, like ascending mm. into something. And then, of course, you have your, and I'm not, I'm only being a little bit kind of cheeky here. You have your cool brides who are like, well, of course I didn't wear white. But it's like, yeah, but, honey, you still got married. Like, you're not... <laughs> You're not a renegade. You still conform <laughs> to the system. You just, in, in just many wore a ways, red like, dress. <laughs> in many ways you kind of conformed in a worse way because you thought you were making it radical by just wearing a different color dress, but fucking different dress, same problematic institution, you know. Mm. You know better than other brides that did it in a church in a white dress with every traditional marker that they could think of. You're not cooler than them because you still got married.
0: You're exactly right and I couldn't help but think, you know, when you talked about conformity for government, that, you know, led me to your chapter on religion and the patriarchy that still exists in religion and how its relationship with marriage is actually probably not what I thought it was, you know. And there was so much in that chapter, you know, and then victim blaming, you know, because one of the passages was that women were getting stoned even if they were, um, they were sexually abused, they would get stoned as well. So
1: all of this, I just need to unpack this a little bit. I mean, it's so funny that people pick and choose from—you know, not just from the Bible. Pick and choose. People pick and choose from any kind of belief system that supports their value system. I'm, I'm sure I do it too on occasion. <laughs> but the Bible has a lot of really fucked up passages about right? murdering women oh, and children. My God, it's so uncomfortable to read. Well, so there's a lot to do with like unpacking religion and patriarchy. But one of the things that uh, is is definitely in the Bible is the and this was a practice as well that um was a legal practice in mesopotamia uh where a, a woman who was and we can see this like being replicated throughout the legal system right up to today which is that a woman who uh was sexually abused raped violated if she were raped inside the city walls she would be considered culpable for it and punished because happy because the idea was that if she were raped inside the city walls then she should have been able to call out for help mm-hmm. she were only considered innocent in that if she were raped outside the city walls because no amount of calling out for help would have assisted her um a lot of these kind of my view and I'm sure that you know I'm not saying anything like that a million other scholars haven't said before me but what was documented in the bible as being the word of god was really just patriarchal practice at the time yep. that you know patriarchy's intent and the men who benefit most from patriarchy and the men who control patriarchy their intense desire to si- to see themselves as god has to be like recognized and we can't extricate that from all of the codes that kind of prop up the patriarchal system. Which then leads us to some of the other arguments that I make in the book, which is the establishment of male expertise, just by virtue of the fact that men in positions of power said something and decided it was true. Which then leads us to, you know, the decision made by men with power throughout history that what they say is true for a start and also naturally comes from a place of expertise by virtue of the fact that they said it. You know, so you look at like Hippocrates, the father of Western medicine, Aristotle, the father of Western civilization, saying things like, well, women's wombs are wild raging animals that go wandering around their bodies because they're untethered. And, you know, we need to, they they called it the wandering wombs. Our wombs had the the capacity to go wandering around our bodies, making us crazy. And the only way that we could be cured of that was to tether them with babies. And of course you needed to be married to do that. Um, And this is pre-religious marriage, obviously, uh, or the religious marriage as we understand it today. Um, you know, Aristotle also saying that women were deformed men who had been created because all the, the natural state of humans was to be born men, but if a man's, if a man's were, sperm wasn't cold enough to temper the hot menses of the woman, <sighs> a girl would be created. And so she was in, in essence a deformed boy. Wow! Um, and this is the person who even today people refer to as the father of Western civilization and logic. The way that we just allow absolutely grotesque thoughts and assertions to be accepted as truth and fact because men decided that they were so is is the reason why if you're at the pub and you're speaking to fucking, I used the example at my launch last night, Dave down the pub, who's like, well, men built the world. Women are naturally the nurturers. Everyone knows it. You're like, you're literally speaking out of your ass as were the men who said those things in the first place. They have no fucking idea what they're talking about, but they said what was convenient for them. The reason that that this idea of the woman as nurturer became so deeply held and and it was the white middle-class woman who really was meant to embody this idea of the nurturing woman, because every other woman, particularly the working-class women, have just been expected to clean up after everybody. The reason that That was so important for Victorian era scientists to establish women as the moral center of the household and women as the domestic angels and the nurturers, was because they were trying desperately to keep women out of universities. Mm -hmm. They were trying desperately to stem that sort of proto feminism that was sweeping through the The middle class at the time which was shortly after the establishment of the middle class which was with it brought the capacity and and the even the thought to women that they could be independent and that they could be they could carve out some kind of financial independence for themselves which they would lose by by virtue of the doctrinal law of coverture if they married because everything they owned then became the property of their husbands. So Victorian era scientists had been desperately trying to prove through madcap theories and experiments that women were intellectually inferior to men and people of colour were intellectually inferior to white people. The problem was that every, uh, every experiment and theory they came up with that they felt initially, they were like, yes, this is the one, this proves it. When applied to many of their own quote unquote, male experts and geniuses kind of worked against them, you know? So if they were using craniology, the size of the skull, if they were using phrenology, the bumps in the head, there were a few men who were like, oh, I don't like how I come out in that test. <laughs> that doesn't work like, for me. That's obviously <laughs> wrong. Okay. That that experiment failed. Let's not let's start again. There was no way to prove that women were intellectually inferior to men because, of course, women aren't intellectually inferior to men. In fact, women aren't even intellectually different to men, mm. which is if anyone reads The Gendered Brain by Dr. Gina Rippon, you'll know that even today when people say nonsense and garbage, like, well, men's, men's, men and women's brains are wired differently. That is fucking bullshit. Men and women's brains aren't wired differently. We are socialised differently. Yeah. And they've proven this through extensive Tests and experiments and theories where they've shown that, um, that for example, there was a, a study that they did with children where initially girls showed a decreased capacity for, um, I think it was, um, like spatial awareness because purely from the conditioning of being girls, they weren't being, uh, they weren't having access to spatially aware yep. exercises. And then within the, when the within the time period of um, having these boys and girls play a video game, I think in the same time period, they showed that the neuroplasticity of the girls' brains changed because they were being exposed to these different ways of spatially of spatial awareness. It's all about the neuroplasticity of the brain. It's not about like yes, there are hormonal things that differ between people's hormonal makeups, right? But even then, there are some. You know, cis women who have varying degrees of testosterone and estrogen who behave differently to other cis women because it's because that's hormonally based. The idea of a brain being fundamentally intellectually superior because of a gender is something that is absolute bullshit that they couldn't prove. And because they couldn't prove it, they settled on the the theoretical and ideological position that men and women were just different. Mm. And men and women were different because women had babies. Mm. And so because women had babies, they were naturally inclined to nurturing, which meant Mm. they had to stay at the homestead. They had to be in the domestic space. So they established that women were the nurturers and it was a very convenient and easy way to keep women from pursuing education because the argument that they came up with was that too much education would concentrate too much energy into a woman's brain and it would upset the fragile stability of her of her fertility which meant that like basically too much book learning can stop (laughs) her from having a baby these are ideas that just got put into the world by people who'd established themselves by virtue of their own privilege as being the ones who dictated mm. what the world looked like. And they still hanging around those ideas. And we still, they don't, they're not even hanging around. They're fully permeated, you know. Like there are still people who say absolute garbage, like, mm. well, women need to have babies. Otherwise they won't know what it's like to be happy. How will you have realised your, your true purpose? Now the thing is a lot of people who have reproductive capacity to grow and birth a baby may decide that they want that. It doesn't mean that all people who have that capacity want it yeah. and it doesn't mean who all people, it doesn't mean that the people who wanted it but didn't have it will somehow fundamentally be, like, denied a human experience, you know. But we we keep women in particular trapped in this idea of marriage and motherhood because, as Adrienne Rich said, heterosexual romance is presented to women as our great adventure.
0: Yeah. Through Disney films as well, which I know you mentioned mm. as well as those, you know, things to aspire to. But, you know, through your book, what was very clear is what you've said, that throughout time people have always tried to oppress women in some way, whether it was a witch hunt, whether it was through religion, mm. whether it was through marriage, whether it was through our brains, etc. But I do love the idea of you saying that, you know, we can be the princesses that save ourselves and it's never too late to start again. But how do we do that when our society is so entrenched mm. in that, big day and that wedding in that you're saved is that we don't have to worry about you anymore you're married that's it you've made it the ring the wedding how do we how do we push back against that when it's so entrenched in you know decades Mm. and hundreds of years of our history Mm.
1: well I think that we do it brick by brick Mm. you know we can get very trapped in the idea of thinking that something is too big for us to dismantle something is too enormous and too deeply entrenched for us to overturn. But the thing that I I go back to is, listen, I'm not going to fool myself that every single person who reads this book is going to go out and file for divorce, even if they stay (laughs) in their relationship. I'd love for them to do that, actually. In (laughs) fact, if you're listening to this and if you read the book and if any of it resonates with you, I want you to know that you can divorce your spouse and stay together. You're allowed to do that I can imagine and, those conversations that well there's something <laughs> there's something political about removing your name from the system that the government can point to and say well this is how many married people we have and this is why we can institute these policies because yeah. we can point to a conservative framework of va- family values you can divorce and you can stay together you can also divorce and leave you can if you changed your name. This is another really interesting one that a lot of women won't know. If you changed your name when you got married, because as is so often argued, I wanted to have the same last name as my children. Firstly, think about the subtext of that. I changed my name when I got married because I wanted to have the same last name as my children. And I knew he would never change his name to mine. I and, knew that. And the we children never... would
0: automatically get the father's
1: name. So there was, yeah, a lot of I thinking knew we could it. never all have my name. I knew that he wouldn't want it. So if you're a marriage of equals, automatically, why is that one of the first choices that's demanded of you? Yeah. Is that you give up your name? Oh, well, it's just your father's name anyway. Yeah, well, it's just his father's name by that reckoning. So you're choosing between your dad's name and his dad's name. Except that he gets to have the name for himself, doesn't he? Mm. You don't. You don't. You're just on loan yeah. from one man to another, which goes back to the idea of coverture. Another good political reason for people to refuse to do it is because once upon a time women had no legal choice. And you can say, well, there's that word, choice. Isn't the point that we have choice now? No. Choice is an illusion. If you are doing it because he would never tolerate you not doing it or you're doing it because it gives you status or you're doing it because it gives you a little smug shiver of a thrill to be like, I'm a wife, or you're doing it because you don't want to have the difficult conversations with your family or because, well, I wanted to have the same last name as my child, whatever it is, it doesn't really matter because all you have to do is remember that once upon a time, women were forced to do it because women were seen as property. That's right. So you doing it now says that that time not only didn't exist, but that somehow can be changed, somehow can be made okay. And it can't ever be made okay because one of the other really important things to remember about that was that it wasn't just women who were considered the property of men. It was children too. And so women were under the authority of their husband and he owned the children. She couldn't leave because he would automatically legally keep the children because they were his. And, they automatically got his name because that conferred status to them. So I would also ask your listeners to think when they make the argument that I wanted to have the same last name as my children, or of course I gave him, I gave the children his last name. Think of the many countless infinite number of children throughout history, particularly in Western history, because matronomic naming traditions exist all over the world. It's just mm-hmm. in the West where we have this very patronomic, yeah. I mean, they have patronomic naming traditions otherwise, uh, uh, you know, elsewhere too, but the West really holds on to this idea of patronymic naming traditions as being the way that things are. So think about all of the children through European history who were born outside of wedlock, wedlock, that great, like (laughs) that great word that indicates exactly what it is, locked into wedhood. The children who were born outside of that who were stamped with the brand illegitimate bastard who, because they did not have the blessing of a man's name to turn them into fully realised humans of value and worth, were denied the opportunities that were given to other children who, had, who did have paternity, who were considered to be real. Because if you were born to, born to come and block, she was obviously a whore, she was a slut, she was a slatin, she was garbage, she was sullied goods, and you as the child of sullied goods, were also solid goods. Yes. You couldn't inherit money. Even if you could be proven to be like the Ill- illegitimate child, illegitimate, to, to say that a human is illegitimate. Yeah. If you could be proven to be the child of a wealthy nobleman who'd just been fucking his maid and let's be honest, probably assaulting her, you didn't have the right to anything that he owned and had inherited via intergenerational wealth or stolen from the woman he'd married or whatever it might be, because you were a bastard, a bastard. So I would say to women now, again, that it's deeply political to say, I am not going to give my child this man's name. I mean, you can merge the names if you want, you can come up with a new name. But at least consider that what you do when you automatically resort to the choice quote unquote choice of giving your child the man's name is that again you are codifying this system that for for so much of history said that without it your child would have no opportunity. And I want to read you a quote I read it on another podcast the other day but it's a it's a it's not only a beautiful kind of like rallying cry. But it also speaks to how long women have been wrestling with these choices and have been making these political decisions and how some women really went against the grain to put themselves on the line to challenge them. This is Pauline Roland. A French socialist and feminist writer uh, in the 19th century. Um, she insisted on a radical view of the family. She was not married to her partner. They lived in a free union. They raised children by multiple parents. Uh, she was friends with um, Flora Tristan, who was another French socialist. And when Flora Tristan died, she adopted her child. Radical. And she wrote in a letter to Aglaé Saint Hilaire I want to become a mother, but with paternity unknown. I have questioned myself severely on this subject. I asked myself whether, in the sixth state that pregnancy always brings on, I would be strong enough not to ask a man to give a name to the child in the eyes of the world, to whom he would be father before God. I also asked myself whether I had the right to bring into the world a being who would be rejected because of his birth. I resolved both questions affirmatively. I will be proud of my maternity, and my child will be proud of his birth. And I just read that. It makes me want to cry, like I'm Mm. welling up even saying it to you, because it was... It wasn't just an ideological position for her to kind of muse and ponder, for her to say, rejected in the eyes of the world yeah, and then say, no, I will be proud of my maternity. It is, it is just as important, if not more so, than paternity, and my child will be proud of his birth. My child will be proud of his mother is what she's saying, and my child will be proud of himself without this stamp of approval that comes from like the patriarchy saying, well, you're a legitimate child. Mm. So all of these things matter. And we can sit there and say, well, it's, you know, it's romantic, it's choice, it's tradition. None of this happens except by design. And when I say we can dismantle it brick by brick, I'm not naive enough or Pollyanna enough to think that I'm going to dismantle marriage with one book. Mm. Like many of these women, like Pauline Roland, like Flora Tristan, like Volterrain de Clare, who was a 19th century marriage abolitionist and anarchist, Mary Wollstonecraft, you know, Moderanta Fonte from the 1600s, going all the way back to the Indian nuns of, you know, 400 BC who were raging against marriage. They did their part. They took down their bricks and none of them lived long enough to see what we have now. They didn't live long enough to see no-fault divorce. They didn't live long enough to see an end to coverture. They didn't live long enough to see an end to the stamping of children with labels like illegitimate and bastard. But they did it anyway. Yeah. And we are only here now because of them. So what we do today, whether or not it's with marriage, whether or not it's with protesting genocide, whether or not it's with, you know, protesting just our governments, whether or not it's just with speaking up at work, whatever it is, we all have the ability and the opportunity to use our voice to make a difference for the people who come after us.
0: Yeah, no, I love that. And I love that brick by brick because when you were mentioning all those women in history and we know what happened to women in history often when they spoke out, but I think it's so important. And they have paved that way. And I think we've got to continue to do that as well. So I really like thank you for this book. I was really excited to read it because I sort of, you know, I thought I, this is a book that really interests me. It is hard to read because, you know, you look at how women have been treated not only through history but still today and look at our stats, you know, of domestic mm-hmm. violence and a woman dying a week. Like it's it's horrendous and they're all interlinked. You know, you can say marriage is separate
1: to that, but they're all interlinked. Well, what is what is mm-hmm. domestic? What is the rate of men? I mean, women's most dangerous predator mm. is man and the most dangerous... Men statistically to women are the men that we live with, right? The men that we love. I mean, that is crazy. It is. And And yet, we had
0: a stat sorry, a 40% of women who've had a male partner have been subjected to violence like
1: 40%. Everyone thinks, well, this is the thing it's that, like, also women are deeply romantic. Mm. Not, I'm not saying blanket, like, we've been conditioned into into an idea of romance that our someday our prince will come. You know, when you wish upon a star, our prince will come and then we will whistle while we work. All of those things yeah. that we get the kiss, he brings us back to life, true love's kiss, we get whisked away to the castle, happy, happily ever after. But we never see what happens after the ending. And there's a reason, as I say in the book, there's a reason that so many of these Disney heroines have dead mothers. Yes, that's because I know. they don't have, if the mother is dead, She can't tell you what's on the other side of the happy ever after. (laughs) What they have are wicked stepmothers who are jealous of their youth and beauty. And my argument in the book, in my theory, is that around this time that, you know, the first Disney cartoon came out in 1937. I think it was. It was Snow White. And then, you know, there was um, uh, 1951, I think, was Sleeping Beauty or Cinderella. And then 1957 was Sleeping Beauty. This was the time we were not very far post suffrage, right, not very far post flapper era, uh, you know, 1920 s women women's sexual liberation, which no one ever wants to talk about. And then in the post-war boom period when we needed to get women back into the kitchen because the soldiers had all come home and found that their jobs had been taken. and so we needed to governments and needed to like reinstate this sort of the way things were type mentality what you then have my theory is in the representation of the older wicked witch and the older wicked stepmother who's jealous of this youth youthful like virginity and primacy and beauty is the feminist witch who's promising with the offering of the apple or the sp- or the spinning wheel the prick of the spinning wheel promising a future to this girl that is poisonous and that will take her away from her true destiny, which is to be rescued by a man and then go off to the castle and live happily ever after. It's all so insidiously packaged. And, of course, women today find it, I mean, even me, even I find it difficult to kind of break. As I said, I'm deeply romantic, but even I find it difficult to break away from this idea that you could find a true partnership a true meeting of minds and bodies and you know relational love for each other but the thing is I always come back to logically that that's conditioning speaking to me and I actually have those things Mm. I have the the deepest of platonic loves that are so much more expansive in my life than any romantic love I've had really and I still have sex you know I still get a degree of like love and pleasure but I just don't live with anyone I would never have anyone live with me again I'm not interested in that and then so people say okay well that's all very well and good for you big fancy author what if we can't afford it
0: and I get that that's a fair point and that's how society's built again you know society is well, yeah. structured around the convenience of marriage and well that that's deliberate design
1: deliberate design absolutely women you need to find someone preferably a man, but, you know, we'll accept same-sex relationships now because they're sort of propping up the conformist conservative idea of the family. Women, you need to find someone who will take care of you and who will give you val- validity and meaning and who will give you status in the world and who in his very troubling economic times will be someone on whom you can rely when you have children. That is a deeply firstly, deliberate design of the system to, you know, again, like I go back to this idea that if we really cared about mothers and if we really recognised the work that mothers do purely economically, like if if what you value is capitalism, and let's just say for a moment that I do, I don't, but like let's just say I was like, well, I'm propping up the capitalist system. I'm I'm a politician and I'm invested in capitalism. I'd be like, do you know who the biggest providers of workers to the world are? Women, mostly. Like, yes, it's not always, it's not just women who have babies and not all women have babies. But I'd be like, women are the ones who are providing the next generation of workers. We need to make sure that those workers are safe, are, you know, well-adjusted. And the best way that you can make sure that, well, my idea is that one of the one of the most important ways to raise a well-adjusted, um, healthy, supported happy child is to make sure their mother is all of those things because she's the one who's largely doing the care work of Mm -hmm. raising them if you make women but this is how it works you make women afraid of being single mothers and mothers in the margins because then they won't buck the system Mm -hmm. and the reason that one of the reasons why patriarchy really needs women to commit themselves to marriage isn't just because it doesn't give a fuck about single mothers. It's because it needs women to commit themselves to the care of men. Because without women committing themselves to the care of men, men themselves might start to question the systems that they live in. They would start to question that as much as they might value themselves as the builders of the world and, like, the dominant masters of all things, the only things they really get to be the dominant masters of, theoretically, are women and children. Because a lot of them are the underlings of much more powerful men. You know, when men say, oh, we built the world, it's like, do you know who didn't build anything? Tim Gurner, CEO. Tim Gurner, billionaire property developer. He built a business and then he used all of you to go out and build the buildings. Mm. Men are, it's too troubling for a lot of men to question their emasculation at the hands of patriarchy. And so they switch that and they say that we're being emasculated by women because it's easier for them to blame women for that because they're also in the same way that women who stand up on their wedding day and say, well, this is the one thing I'm allowed to get attention for. The one thing that they're allowed to do as men is to blame women. They're not allowed to question the patriarchal system because the patriarchal system will turn on them. And they know that deep down in their bones. It's like Bell Hook said, the first act of violence that patriarchy demands of men is not violence towards other people, it's violence towards themselves. It teaches them to carve out of themselves the parts that don't fit, I'm paraphrasing here, and if he won't do that, he can rely on other men to enact that violence against him. We're encouraged away from recognising our own subjectivity, that if we are only wives and mothers and carers and therapists and the angel of the house who takes care of the moral center of things and who makes sure that, you know, as I call them like the trampolines on which men can bounce higher and higher as they soar off into the world. If we are, if we are the ones, if men go out and have their great adventure in the world, building the world and discovering the world and exploring the world and colonizing the world, marriage is a colonial project as well, I would say, then women's job as Adrienne Rich said again, our great adventure is the the heterosexual romance that comes from staying at home and standing on the cliffs or in the tower or in the turret, whatever it might be, and watching for their ship to come back in. That's the romance and the adventure that we are allowed to have in our life. And if you make women believe that that's their purpose, that that's the romantic role that they can play, then they always live in someone else's subjectivity. They don't have subjectivity of their own. They don't have a, a, a an intellectual like landscape of their own where they can say I matter, I'm valuable, I can be my own great love, I can be validated by other people in my life, I can carve my own path, I can go out and have my own great adventure because their subjectivity is always related to someone else. It always lives inside someone else's subjectivity, mm. the man's subjectivity. She is the supporting character cheering him on in his quest that is not something that can change overnight because it's it's a it's a process of unlearning how you've been taught to see yourself and figuring out what it is that you actually look like it is a lot of when unlearning
0: you, and i felt like this a book, lot of unlearning this book exactly did that
1: you know a lot of unlearning
0: of everything that we have been brought up with ever since we were born particularly as women
1: Well, and one of the things that we've been brought up with, if we just go quickly back to the economics, one of the things that we've been brought up with is the idea that the only way to have a family is in this very nuclear model, which I'd I'd also remind listeners is again, very new. The nuclear family is not traditional. If marriage was once upon a time about empire building as, as harsh and oppressive as it was of women, it wasn't about empire building by creating little groups of four or five people. It was about expanding the kinship groups you 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 know people make jokes about their mothers-in-law now which i find it why are there never any jokes about fathers-in-law yeah, is right. it because fathers and is it because fathers-in-law just like fathers are not particularly involved in their families like originally or not originally like not that long ago in-laws were who you were marrying into. Like Mm. it was expansion of the family. So in that sense, the economic security that came from marriage under the system that they were in, it was oppressive towards women. Women didn't have any choice. But it at least provided some kind of economic framework. Now we have this idea that family is this one thing. You marry one person and you have a few kids and then that's it. That's your little cohort and you protect them with your life. And I've got a new family now. I grew up and I've left my parents. Now I've got this family. Why is that the only way to have a family first and foremost? And considering we do live in such economic suffocation and there are people out there who I understand cannot in their mind afford and in practicality as well, although let's be real, single mothers scrape by and do it very punitively every day. But just because something is hard doesn't mean it's not possible. So, let's just say for argument's sake that the only way that you can have a family and the only way that you can economically survive in this world is by living with another wage earner and raising those kids together. Why does that wage earner have to be someone who's sharing your bed? Yeah. Why does that wage earner have to be, in many cases for women, a man who also expects that you do a lot of the unpaid care work for him? Why can it not be a wage earner who is also a friend? Why can it not be a wage earner who's a sister, who is two friends, three friends. Why can mothers not imagine a life for themselves where the children are actually separate to the men who, who offer the sperm to create the children? Now, like, just leave aside, if you're out there and you're like, you know, but I want to have a relationship, just forget that for a moment. And just think about the actual biological imperative that you might have to, to have a child and the biological capacity that you have. If I have, I've, a uterus and a womb, which I do. I've had, I've had a child. If I found myself in my, you know, dwindling reproductive years, and they always make women feel like, "Hurry up, hurry <laughs> oh, up, no. time's running out." <laughs> or geriatric pregnancy—that was my geriatric favorite pregnancy. too. Yeah, yeah, I was thirty-five, and I was a geriatric pregnancy. Yep. Same. If I hadn't had a, if I wasn't in a relationship with someone at the time who I created an incredible child with, and now we're beautiful co-parents together, so there's also, always also possibilities to grow and move on with someone. Why, how does it, how is it logical that we then live in a world where my probable, although not necessarily automatic, but my probable response to that would be, well, I guess I don't get to have a child because I don't have a boyfriend Yeah, because I don't have a husband. Why, why is this, this thing, this incredible, magical, extraordinary capacity that my body has given me to have a child that I want to use contingent upon whether or not I find some guy to help me do it or to give me permission in the eyes of society to have that child. It goes back to the illegitimacy again, Mm -hmm. that for a woman to do it alone, she's somehow, you know, she's, she's less than, but also she's unwanted goods. She's garbage herself. She's, she's um, duplicitous in some way. She's doing it wrong. She's bucking the trends of society and therefore we have to be deeply suspicious of her. It is crazy that we cannot or or, what I think we should do is reimagine for ourselves. And if any women out there are in that position where they are of reproductive age, they'd like to have a child, they don't feel like they have someone to do it with or they're like time's running out and they're starting to get a bit musical chairs desperate. Oh, I've got to just find a guy to do it with. You don't. You don't have to find a guy to do it with. You can find a friend to do it with. You can do it by yourself and get the support of friends. You could live with other single mothers. There's a, There are whole communities of women out there who are reimagining how we could live in the world. And what I would say to you is you are no less guaranteed of security and happiness in an economic arrangement with a person who you love as a friend and who you trust as a friend but who you are not tethering the stability of that relationship to the flimsy, unpredictable nature of love and sex than you are if you do it with a romantic partner. In fact, you're probably more likely to have economic stability because you have freedom then. You, you haven't then fallen into the system, as Stephanie Kuntz says, of the modern relationship, the modern marriage, this companionate idea of I married my best friend, of your quote-unquote partner and so often the men are not partners to women not in the real sense of the word they're just anchors and weights who drag them down but you're not then tethering yourself to them in a way that makes it harder for you to leave later you know you're not that person doesn't have to be every single thing to you best friend lover economic co support co-parent um therapist like we put too much emphasis and pressure on this idea of like the soulmate Mm -hmm. that to qualify our relationship to qualify the relationship that we have with the person we might be sleeping with the most important relationship of our life we have to somehow prove that it's like it exists on this really spiritual plane when actually like raising children is hard Mm. and maybe we'd all be better off if we raised children more in like economic and platonic partnerships rather than threatening the fragility of that union and yeah. that's that sort of like home i think you're with right, like, all yeah, of these all absolutely. of these like hormones yeah but you we
0: do we put so much pressure on relationships and we expect that one person we have so many expectations of that romantic partner that you wouldn't possibly expect from a friend or a parent or a no. sister you know and then we wonder why they buckle under the fragility. And I think we underestimate how fragile these romantic relationships are.
1: Well, the other thing as well is like if you're a woman out there and you're kind of like some of this is sitting a little bit uncomfortably with you because maybe it's highlighting some of the inequality in your home or or it's it's hard not to think about it when it's being laid out so clearly. Firstly, I want you to know that I love you. You're not stupid for having wound up in this situation A lot of women feel really embarrassed about it, and I know because I was one of them, and it's hard to talk about because they feel like it would never happen to them. But in the same way that victim survivors of domestic abuse don't think it's going to happen to them often, we know that it can happen to anyone, and it can happen to anyone, and this kind of like exploitation can happen to anyone because it's the system that conditions us into it. So if you're listening to this and it's feeling like uncomfortably kind of close to the bone, Think to yourself, if you were living with a friend, would you tolerate them throwing their clothes next to the laundry basket? Would you tolerate them leaving the dishes in the sink for you to do? Would you tolerate them if you said, well, have you paid the bill for the electricity yet? It's your turn this month saying, I'll do it later. I'll do it later. There's so many things that we would never tolerate from a friend or from a housemate because we would recognize them for what they are which is abject signs of disrespect that made our life more difficult and and our home life really untenable that we swallow as women when it's coming from a partner and not always a male partner this definitely happens in same sex relationships too that we swallow because we feel like there's you know it's the sunk cost fallacy i've put i've put 7 years into this if i leave now that's 7 years down the drain you know, and that's a real thing for a lot of women. They're like, well, I have to go and find someone else. Firstly, you don't, you don't have to find anyone else. Like you're whole and complete all by yourself. But secondly, if what you're worried about is the time that you've put in, flip it. Think about the time that you have left to save. Yeah, absolutely. You've put seven years in, you've put 10 years in, you've put 15 years in. You're like, well, some cost, like, if I leave now, that's 10 years down the drain. You've maybe got 20 or 30 years of life left. Mm-hmm. that You can save for yourself you're 10 you're at the pokies and you're 10 dollars down you know everyone th- this is the the reason i say pokies is because despite the fact that we know the house always wins despite the fact that we know there are countless like most people are not like living with their soulmate. most people are not so like deeply in love every single day of their life they just kind of tolerate it mm-hmm. and and we also know that for for all that we might kind of like herald in the idea of a soulmate, Fucking the majority of women in history were not married to their soulmate (laughs) and they may not have ever had an experience of love with a man under the conditions that they were living in. The love that they had would have come from their friends and from the women who understood them. So we know that the house always wins, yet you've seen someone else put their $2 in and they've scored the jackpot because there's always the exception, right? There's always the person who does get to live with their great love forever. It's probably not going to be you. So you've put 10 bucks. 10 years in the pokey machine and you know that it's not working out for you and you'll be you're like, I've just put 10, if I just put two more dollars in, I might win that 10 years, yeah, 10 years back, I might get it back. Soon you're going to be 30, 40 more dollars yeah. down the drain. And then you've run out of money. You've run out of years. You've run out of time. This moment today, listening to this podcast, if it is the sign that you are looking for, then take the sign.
0: I love the idea of flipping it because any decision that I've made in my life, I look at from perspective of ninety-six-year-old Danny, and I'm like, "What would ninety-six-year-old Danny think? Ninety-six-year-old Danny would think? Do this or do that? Because it's hard in the yeah. moment. It's hard to it's hard. do all of those things, but it ends up being better and easier as you. Flip Absolutely.
1: That. And when you speak to women on the other side of it, mm. you will be, you know just awash with victory stories of women who've yeah. reclaimed their yeah. lives and reclaimed their happiness, who've reclaimed their peace. And one thing I said, and I stress that, again, you know, I have a really wonderful relationship with my son's father. I think he's, an, he's a wonderful man and I and I really value him as a friend and a co-parent, but we just didn't work out as a couple
0: and that's okay you know that's
1: okay but society says it's not okay you know and we saved our family by separating you know there's women are also trapped into staying because they're told well you don't want to have a broken family the family was broken I was broken our relationship was broken and now it's fixed now it's healed and it's not the same as it was there's scars still but it's like you know it's like Japanese pottery thing. Yeah, when, yeah, when, yeah. You know, I know what you, you mean. Yeah. Something yeah. is like stuck back together and it creates something more beautiful, more beautiful. Yeah. Um. It's not, as I said, like earlier on, something might be hard, but it doesn't mean it's impossible. Yeah. Thank you so much for, it's
0: just been so fascinating listening to you and reading this book and the passion you have. And I thank you for being an attention seeker. I thank you for having your voice out there, because like you said, without people like you having these conversations, we can't change the narrative we can't you know alert people to all these things that you have in the book Mm -hmm. about you know the history of 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 women of oppression of marriage and what that means for us in the future you know we can't ignore it we can't just say that doesn't apply to me because I think it applies to all of us and it it continues with the way that we continue to treat people in our society Mm -hmm. so thank you for this book and thank you for your voice and I'm glad that um I know we'll keep hearing it (laughs)
1: throughout thank you thank you so much Jenny and I really appreciate you you know, engaging so deeply and beautifully with the book. It's such a privilege as a writer to have people, you know, show that they they care about the work that you do and, uh, you know, to speak about it on such a deep level and to welcome someone like me, especially who just talks and talks and talks and talks because <laughs> I've got so much to say. Um, so thank you so much for your time and for extending this invitation and, you know, all my best to all of your listeners. And I am grateful to be here.